All right. Well, I guess just to start off, thank you so much for being here today. And yeah. loved reading Gamer Trouble. It was super fascinating. <laughs> uh, but I actually want to begin by asking, have you been playing anything interesting recently? I actually, so I just finished off Binding of Isaac, which is, you know, it's a, it's a roguelike that is notorious for being really difficult. Um, and I put probably about 1300 hours into this game and finally completed all three save files. Um, so that was a big accomplishment. And then I dove immediately into Hades in part because all my students were like, oh my God, you have to play Hades. Uh, and so enough of them said that independently of one another that I was like, okay, I'll pick Hades up. Um, and it sort of fills the void that Isaac has left because it's also another roguelike. Um, you have to beat it over and over and over to like unlock everything. So. I've been enjoying it. Yeah, and it's Binding of Isaac. Is that a platformer? There's a platformer that my roommate and his girlfriend have been playing that has been causing much consternation in that room. So I don't know <laughs> if it's the same game, but... No, 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 no. Binding of Isaac is a roguelike. Okay. And it's it's based on the title. It's very loosely um, Biblical. adapted from the story of Isaac, except it's, it's contemporary and it's Isaac's mom um, that is basically trying to kill him. Uh, because God told her to. And it's just like this nightmarish sort of world. Um, that it's really gross. I, I really uh, was sort of debating whether or not I wanted to stream it for my students. It's a really fun game to stream because it's a permadeath. It's procedurally or randomly generated. Um, and so it's got a lot of things that are like really fun and exciting um, for a live audience, but it's just so gross. It's just filled with like poop and blood and like monsters and really grotesque imagery it's also really like sexist and racist and transphobic and and a lot of uh, things that like normally aren't my bag but it's, it's just like my I don't know it's been my my guilty pleasure in a way um, I'm actually working on trying to write something about it uh, as a not only sort of like exploring video games and like a addiction because my relationship to Isaac um, is definitely one of I don't know that I enjoy playing it as much as I've like felt compelled to play it over and over and over again uh, and then also thinking about the sort of representational elements my background growing up in a really restrictive evangelical home as a sort of like trans non-binary queer person. Um, and so, so many of the elements and the, the grotesqueness really um, resonate with me. And so I'm trying to like turn that into something academic since once you spend 1300 hours in a game, it's like, I have to get something else out of this. <laughs> well, that sounds fascinating. Please let me know when that comes out. And yeah. Actually, I mean, like a little bit later on, I do want to touch on some of those that you, you mentioned addiction and things like that. You talk about like uh, envelope power and flow and different concepts in your book that I definitely want to touch on later. Yeah. Uh, but I think to begin, I want to touch on just uh, or start with the concept of gamer itself. And you kind mm -hmm. of present a lot of modes of looking at the idea of a gamer uh, as an identity category, as, and I'm kind of quoting from the introduction here, an individual traversing complicated technological narrative, ludic, economic, and social systems simultaneously and at will, but then also at the same time as a marketing fiction. Like there's lots of different modes that you sort of approach the concept of gamer as. So I was wondering if you, you could talk a little bit more about how you approach that concept in writing the book. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, the concept of gamer goes hand in hand with the concept of trouble as well, because um, gamer is a really troubled term. Um, and for a lot of the, you know, things that you already said, but also in, in sort of like navigating my own relationship to 
the identity category, the word, the whatever, um, gamer, right? As someone who does not, in, in many ways, does not fit the, you know, imagined demographic gamer. Um, but in certain ways, I think, particularly around like masculinity and a, a perceived kind of whiteness, um, I do fit that category. And I think I mentioned in the introduction that that's one of the things that was really developmental for my masculinity growing up was video games were what I did with my brother and mostly with, not not entirely with other um, sort of masculine friends. I did have a bunch of um, girlfriends who like would watch me play. And so it was still like an interesting sort of gendered relationship, um, but we enjoyed video games together, like while I was playing. And so there's a lot of like gender trouble in the term uh, gamer as well. And then just sort of like thinking about the way that other scholars think about the term gamer. Um, and of course, you know, Adrian Shaw is the, the big one here who, you know, encourages us to just kind of like, let's forget this term because it, it brings in too much baggage um, in some ways, but then it also uh, sort of you know, most folks who play games don't actually identify as gamers. And so from a from a certain lens, thinking about the gamer is already constricting yourself to a very narrow range of people who engage with games. And so I understand that. And yet it was, it, you know, gamerness was still so central to my own experience and my own sort of engagement with games that, you know, it was something that I wanted to explore from all those different lenses. And diving into the kind of experience of gameplay itself and kind of those complex systems that you talked about, uh, do you think you could talk a little bit more about what you mean by envelope power and kind of the way that you describe it as like the way a developer successfully enfolds players in those systems? Yeah, so envelope power is not my term. Um, <coughs> and actually, I'm forgetting, I'm really bad on the spot with names. Um, and so I think it's James Ash was his name. Anyways, it's not my term, but I was really compelled by this idea. And a lot of folks um, sort of play around with the idea that games enfold us in some ways. And it's about attracting and really not just directing, but capturing attention. Um, and so like Ash's way of describing envelope power, I found really compelling, particularly because um, he starts out with the premise that like, it's not just a directing of attention, but it's this sort of like, interesting permeable bubble that you're in, um, which felt like resonated a lot with my own experiences, right? So, you know, what I mentioned about Isaac, um, you know, a few minutes ago, it, it's sort of like that feeling of being compelled or like the switches in the other room and I'm grading or something and it's just like calling to me, <laughs> right? It, they're really great at directing attention like that. And so I, I really enjoyed Ash's concept of envelope power and, and how it helps us think about power not as something that's absolute right not that like there is power or there is not power but that power is very flowy and it's all around us um and it's sort of like pulling us in different directions in different ways at all times and does that how does that map on exactly to there's a, the concept of flow from Hungar hungarian psychologist michael Csikszentmihalyi, i believe it's pronounced but uh, yeah, there's that concept of flow. Do those, is that a one-to-one -one match or are they slightly different concepts? No, well, like I said, that's another sort of instantiation of the same kind of similar concept. Um, you know, flow to me, or, you know, in, in I believe it's Chiksin Mihai, uh, is how, how it's pronounced. It's, it's a whole, I like, it's a whole thing. I the Hungarian, <laughs> yes. Um, but, you know, that coming out of a, a certain, like, organizational psychology 
is it organizational? I don't know, some sort of um, branch of psychology, thinking about how to make productive workers. I, I think that's like really interesting um, or, you know, ways to uh, attract and hold attention for means of productivity in a certain way. And then of course, like the magic circle is another variation of this where the idea is, you know, that you exist within a somewhat separate game space um, or magic circle in which, you know, rules are different um, within that circle than without it, which of course, you know, both of these terms have a lot of uh, challengers um, and, and folks who find them more or less useful. I'm more of, you know, and this is, this points towards the trouble in the title, you know, I'm more of a lateral thinker and I like to think across and like with things rather than like sort of narrowing myself to this really like specific technical vocabulary that that gives certain certain affordances or whatever I'm, I'm much more of a let all the flowers bloom it's like it's sort of flow it's sort of a magic circle um it's sort of an envelope and you know all of these are useful in their different ways I've actually always been kind of fascinated with that in terms of like I mean in the, this is more talking about games writ large but why people are willing to grind away like hours, for instance, like when I'm playing Minecraft, I'm willing to kind of like go to the mines, like, you know, get more coal, use it to like just this almost endless process. But then again, like when I'm trying to get my first graders to do sight words or just kind of like, what is the difference between kind of rote memorization practices in school versus a game? Like, why are these on the face level, these kind of similar processes, but I don't know. I, it's something that's always fascinated me. So Yeah. Well, I mean, there's there's a certain pleasure to it, right? Um, whether or not we experience it as pleasurable, um, I think, you know, flow gets us into this state of, I would almost describe it as euphoric um, in some ways, uh, because it is, you know, and this is um, in Chiksim Mihai's uh, you know, development of the theory, you lose your sense of time, you're sort of like in another space entirely. And this is another reason I wanna, I wanna think about games increasingly around like mental health and addiction issues, because I know, you know, my engagement with games has all, often been very unhealthy um, in certain ways or as a way to sort of like almost dissociate from the world. And, you know, it, without pathologizing that, I think it's, it's like an interesting phenomenon that like, I seek games in those moments when I just want to like, <laughs> just sort of, uh, I guess that doesn't come across on a podcast, right? But just sort of like blank out um, and, and be doing something. Uh, one of the things that I have started writing about Isaac um, is sort of thinking about, and you know, I don't have a diagnosis, I don't have a treatment or anything, but thinking about the way that Isaac unlike many other games that I engage with or many other things that I do in my life, it captures all of my senses and like focuses them in a way that I can't otherwise, right? My brain is always moving from one thing to another and, and you know, being all over the place. When I'm playing Isaac, I'm just there. I'm like calculating all of the, cause it's randomly generated. So I don't know what's coming next. And I have to have all the like the decision trees in my head about like, what's a good thing to do? What's not a good thing to do. And then it's a really difficult game. So like my hands are really engaged um, in that sort of thing. Um, and so it's not necessarily pleasurable in the sense that I would call it fun, but it does certainly give me something back in a way that maybe your first graders are not that stimulated <laughs> by <clears throat> doing school activities, right? Um, 
which is why everybody's like trying to, well, not everybody, but you know, we had the the moment where everybody wanted to gamify the classroom because like, this is the thing, like if we can get kids and you know, this is Jane McGonigal, this is a whole bunch of folks. If we can get kids um, or anyone really to engage with the stuff for hours, like they're playing games for hours and hours. How do we harness that for productivity? I don't know, like, you know, to a certain extent that ruins it. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. And returning quickly to, you mentioned these sort of flexible power dynamics, that mm -hmm. it's not necessarily a question of like power or absence of power, but kind of a more of a give and take. And you say uh, that you find this concept of development useful uh, for analysis of feminist critiques of gaming, uh, be kind, of, kind of because of these flexible power dynamics. Do you think you could explain a little bit like kind of the connection you drew there? Yeah. Um, and in some ways, again, this is, this is the way that feminist um, and particularly like queer and women of color feminists envision power anyways, right? Because power operates differently in their lives. And, you know, we could point towards, uh, you know, all the work on like intersectional power dynamics, for example, where it's not, and this is, this is something that's really hard to get across to people, right? Intersectionality isn't like this additive thing. It's not like gender plus race equals more oppression. It's that when they intersect with one another, it just like changes the dynamic entirely. It's a whole new thing. And so like the way my brain works, I, I already think of, you know, almost like gravity, you know, how gravity sort of like bends things um, in different directions and, and that sort of thing. So I'm, I'm thinking of like flows and eddies and like power as, as something that is just constantly sort of like shifting in weird ways around us all the time. Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you. And I think the kind of last place I want to go before exploring some of the ideas of ruptures and kind of, the, kind of some of the kind of specific areas and specific kind of case studies you dive into <laughs> is the idea of the metagame that you bring up. Yeah. And would it be a fair characterization to say the metagame is sort of this envelope power extended into the sort of broader milieu surrounding games and game culture? And I feel free to tear apart that characterization. But. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, you know, full disclosure again, I'm not an expert in metagame as a concept. And, and I would point you towards the, the book that I cited there with the, it was Stephanie Bollock and Patrick Lemieux who wrote a, a great book called Metagaming, which I think you'd enjoy. It's, it's a long book. It's got a lot of, but it's very like rich um, and full of really interesting stuff. But yeah, so, I mean, I characterize it in the introduction as, as envelope power writ large, I think is the, the phrase that I use um, because the way that Lemieux and Bollock sort of um, think about metagaming in wider society is that, you know, games or their, I think their characterization is like video games are not games, but they are tools to play metagames with, right? So the metagame is the different ways that we are able to interact with these things, um, these objects. And, but the metagame then also includes our social expectations of what you're supposed to do, um, what they call the anti anti-metagame metagame I think or anti-gaming metagame I forget it's, it's some combination of anti and metagame um is thinking about like or is a, is a way to describe how um this certain subset of gamers wants us to take everything seriously right so it's it's not actually games we're playing we're, we're playing like sort of like really serious real life um things that Sorry, I'm trying to like go through in my head like, how I understand that concept. But yeah, so the anti-metagaming metagame is that 
basically there's a, a, only a certain way that you're allowed to engage with games and anything beyond that, any sort of like critiques, any sort of like playing the wrong way is against that metagame, um, if that makes sense. That makes complete sense. And I, I remember actually seeing that phrase, the anti-metagame metagame on the, in the book and just kind of like taking a double take. And so when you say that, do you mean like gamer trouble then introduces a sort of rupture or what you sort of kind of borrowing from John Lewis saw uh, the kind of wrong, uh, he, I mean, he said uh, good trouble, but uh, the kind of wrong kind of trouble within this gaming community. Is that what you mean by gamer trouble? Yeah, well, I mean, gamer trouble means a lot of things. Um, that's yeah, one yeah. of the things. That's one of the things that it means is that sort of, um, and this is what non-gaming communities think about gaming, right? Is that it's all these like ten-year-olds screaming at you know racist things through the internet, which is not untrue, right? Like that's a real thing that's happening right now. Um, so like that's a kind of gamer trouble but i also like to think about gamer trouble again we, we sort of talked about the different troubled ways that we think about the identity gamer or how it is a, a troubled category um and then you know the sort of phenomenological experience of playing games which i find to be a really troubled experience like it's it's or an experience full of trouble good and bad um because it's constantly again sort of managing your attention it is constantly throwing obstacles in your way and like part of the pleasure of the game is engaging with obstacles um there is no game without trouble no that makes complete sense and kind of moving into the sort of nuanced uh, kind of forms of gamer trouble and the sort of ways you explored it in the book uh, I was wondering if we could kind of look at the first case study that you talk about in the first chapter. And it's very kind of, I loved the chapter title of Dick Wolves and Killjoys. Uh, but if you could give a little bit of context about the Dick Wolves controversy for anyone who might not have uh, kind of been familiar with it and sort of some of the fallout of that. Sure. Um, so Dick Wolves uh, was an internet event um, that preceded Gamergate uh, and that, you know, was... I would say just as big for the gaming community, though it didn't attract as much attention outside like Gamergate did. Um, and it, it revolved around, one of the reasons it was so big is because it revolved around a, a pillar of the community, right? The Penny Arcade um, webcomic was what was implicated, but Penny Arcade is just this huge um, entity in gamer culture. It started as a, a web arcade, uh, web game, the web comic, um, but they have a game out now. They have, um, you know, they hold the Penny Arcade Expo every year, which is one of the biggest fan uh, game fan conventions um, in the country, right? So they're they're these huge sort of um, influential gamers, I'll call them, and they created a web comic that was it was supposed to be making fun of the fact that you have all these really inane. Um, goals in like RPG quests in particular um, that are often attached to really like problematic and serious things, right? So in that case, it was there were a bunch of folks who were tied up like as slaves in a cave or something and you, you go rescue them. But let's say there are seven and you're only supposed to rescue four. As soon as you get to the fourth, you're done with the quest. So you go home, right? So they were making fun of that moment um, where the hero comes up to um, this person who's shackled and is like, sorry, you know, I met my quota, I'm going home now. Um, but with the, and it's called the the fifth slave, I think is the, or sixth slave. And that, that 
slave in the comic says something about like every night they they rape us to sleep we're raped to sleep by the dick wolves or something right so it's just a sort of like throwaway rape joke um that was completely unnecessary to make the the comedy of the the web comic function right it's already a sort of like funny thing that juxtaposition again between like the unseriousness of play and this quest versus the seriousness of like what's actually happening to these people that you're trying to rescue um but folks took exception to the fact that like that moment turned on a rape joke um and so you know they spoke back to penny arcade and were like hey you know this was not cool we'd love it if you could retract or apologize or whatever and instead of just like doing that and letting it go to sleep penny arcade became dick wolves themselves basically <laughs> merchandise and everything like that right like they dug Merchan in yeah they dug in um the first thing they did was actually like make a webcomic making fun of people um who were who were writing to them and you know they have these sort of like embodied character versions of themselves within the webcomic and, and those guys sit down for a conversation and we're like just in case it's really clear we are not encouraging anyone to be rapers you know please don't go rape anyone after you read our comic or whatever right um and in the book you know i i situate this along you know other conversations about what's known as rape culture or the idea that um or the intentional misinterpretation of it by sort of anti-feminist folks is that it's this causal link between media and violence, right? So that you're going to go watch this movie that depicts a rape and then go do it yourself, right? Um, which is not what rape culture or the critiques of rape culture is describing, right? The critique of rape culture and the critique of this comic is that we live in a society that diminishes the seriousness of rape and sort of like treats it as um, something that doesn't need to be addressed in any like meaningful way, right? It just happens. Um, and often this manifests not just in these jokes like this, but things like Brock Turner, for example, who got like almost no punishment um, for assaulting, you know, a passed out woman in an alleyway, right? Um, and so, you know, there's the level of culture, but then there's a level of actual like legal practice where um, sexual assault is not uh, sort of treated as seriously across the board by our institutions. But it's it's a lot, and this is similar to the to the debate about violence in video games, right? Like it's a it's a lot easier for people to dismiss the argument if they say like it's preposterous for you to think that playing violent video games is going to make me a murderer. Look at how many of us are not murderers. I just want to have my fun. Um, but even so, like that's not the critique of violent video games either, um, or it shouldn't be. I mean, maybe some people sort of make that critique, but like that's not my critique of violence in video games. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, it was this sort of like fan fight that kept getting bigger and bigger because Penny Arcade, who had a huge platform, kept bringing it up and kept belittling the folks who were who were critiquing them, right? Um, and as recently, I think it's like 2014 or so, they were still like <laughs> wow. saying this stuff. So. Um, 
am I allowed to curse on this? Because oh, I, uh, I curse okay. away. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay, I have a potty mouth. I've been like raining it in. No, right? no, no. Um, Rain it out. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, it, it just like they just kept engaging over and over and over and just wouldn't let it go. Um, and there were two feminist critics in particular that got um, swept up in it, right? Uh, the first one, of course, was the, the lead blogger of Shakespeare, um, who didn't even write the original, or wait, no, it was Fat Princess that she didn't write the original post. Um, Shakespeare, the feminist blog, got annihilated, right? Or not annihilated, sorry, they got brigaded, I think is the, the better term for it, where a bunch of Penny Arcade fans just like rolled in in masks and were like, you don't know what you're talking about. You're not a real gamer, blah, 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 blah. And then it had, you know, all the characteristics of things that we think of with um, Gamergate, right? It had the death threats, it had the rape threats, and it had all of this sort of like violent language attached. Um, and the other person who got swept up in this um, was, uh, what's her name, his name, um, Courtney Stanton. And, you know, he wrote about this in terms of gender, um, at the time sort of like being perceived as a woman gamer, right? Um, and of course his, his pronouns are, are he, him. Um, but the, the attention that Stanton received was in some ways similar uh, to what Shakespeare received, but they didn't have quite the community um, to, to back him up. Um, and I, I put a, an interesting sort of like visualization that Stanton made um, for a presentation about this this very thing where like the the troll messages on his blog are just like literally mostly go to like I hope you get raped by dick wolves like that that is the the, the point right um, so I, I you know I bring this up because it's really important to think about precursors to Gamergate and the fact that like Gamergate was not the first massive violent harassment event to happen in gamer culture and it's not going to be the last um, and I would say you know one of the one of the things that I think I didn't quite capture well enough in the book um, and that I, I wish you know there are always things that <laughs> you, you would have done differently um, but, you know, I didn't do a good job of, of showing the sort of intersectionality of these events, right? And that in particular women of color. So like Stanton and, um, uh, forgetting her name right now, um, the, the lead blogger on the, sorry, Melissa McEwen. Um, <laughs> Stanton and McEwen um, are both white, but, you know, there are a whole series of, of other events sort of documented, particularly by black women um, that, you know, gamers of color and women of color gamers and, and geek fans, right? So you have like the sad puppies incident, you have all of these other things in other geek communities um, that particularly centered around people of color who often get like even worse backlash um, than the white folks who get, the white folks still get really bad backlash. Um, but a lot of the times because you know, of the power dynamics of race, people of color either get it worse or they don't get as much backup because they're not as visible as um, folks who are being targeted in the same way. Um, and this was true of Gamergate as well, um, right? And uh, Zoe Quinn has written about this, that, you know, becoming the face of Gamergate was, I mean, it was, it was bad for all sorts of reasons um, for them, but like one of the things it did was erase the fact that there were lots of 
women and queer folks of color swept up in Gamergate who weren't getting the, the kind of community support that Quinn was getting at the time. Well, it seems like a lot of this too operates, it was kind of predicated on very problematic ideas of knowledge production and sort of which modes and which spheres of knowledge production are deemed legitimate within the community. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more too about, you talk about the ways the academy and media structures are complicit in this. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. Um, so like one of the things that's really interesting about uh, Dick Wolves, um, the, the precursor event that I wrote about uh, called Fat Princess as well, um, and then also Gamergate. And even all the way back to, you know, the, the chapter opens with a kind of a gloss of the 1993 um, Senate hearings against violence in video games and also the, the 2000. Tipper Gore and Lish yeah, 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 all of that stuff, right? Um, and a lot of these conversations sort of revolve around who has the right, well, who has the right to to sort of produce knowledge about games, but also like who really understands games enough to be able to say anything intelligent about them, right? So if you look at um, critiques of folks who were who were trying to legislate video games at the time. They were, you know, they're very much centered on like, you don't know anything about games, like you're too stupid to understand that like violent video games don't turn us into murderers. There was very similar rhetoric going on against feminist critique, right, of the kind that, um, you know, was produced during Dick Wolves and Fat Princess. And, and a lot of folks were just saying like, you're not real gamers, you have no right to say this, you're just looking at this from the outside of the community. When in fact they weren't, right? Like the, the folks who were critiquing and making feminist critiques of these games were doing so because they themselves engaged with games a lot and identified as gamers. In terms of the academy, there's also a, a kind of similar thing that happens um, in part because feminist knowledge, critical race knowledge, um, what we call situated knowledges are seen as not objective enough, right? And therefore they are not valid means for understanding a phenomenon. Um, they are too biased uh, because they, they, instead of positioning themselves as above identity in some way, they situate themselves within identity categories um, or at least inside theoretical traditions that begin with an identity category, if that makes sense. And so since they're situated, you know, they're not legitimate means of thinking about games. Um, and you'd think, or maybe you wouldn't think um, if you spent enough time inside the academy, but I know a lot of people think that, uh, you know, academics are not prone to this kind of infighting or threats or, or that sort of thing. Um, and that's just not true, right? So I, I wrote about, or I used a, the example of a, a book by Barbara, Barbara Tomlinson, um, that was about the angry feminist. Uh, she was a mentor of mine at UC Santa Barbara in the feminist studies department. Um, but her book is entirely about harassment of feminists um, within an academic community, right? The musicology community is what she was covering in particular. Um, and so I started sort of tracing, and this is, uh, I have another article that just came out um, and it was both older than and newer than Gamer Trouble because it was work that sort of like straddled pre and, and post book. Um, but looking at the, the early foundation or formation of game studies as an academic discipline, which as someone situated within game studies um, and I, that I have been 
since I was a graduate student, there's been a lot of like talk amongst marginalized folks in game studies that like we don't fit in or you know we we don't feel like our perspectives are appreciated um, and in some some cases like folks are extremely hostile to these perspectives and so I wanted to trace that and how that happens and manifests within academic study of games which had a similar sort of anxious beginnings um, and I think you know there's already an embedded anxiety of gamers, period, right? Because games aren't serious. We don't get taken seriously. Everybody's trying to, to legislate games because of whatever um, problematic content, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, I found that the, the academic community forming around games seemed to want to protect the object of study from that kind of scrutiny, um, which manifested in things like only um, or statements like you know only the media and moms would understand um, games in this really fucked up way. And right? Is that what you were touching on with like your analysis of scholarship surrounding GTA San Andreas in terms of like there was a desire to almost not dig in too deeply into some of the messy problematic elements of that for fear of losing some of the legitimacy of the kind of game studies fields. Yeah, and it, it, it like there were some real rhetorical acrobatics that happened around that to, to the extent of like folks saying things like, yeah, you could totally do crimes and like kill sex workers in this game, but you don't have to. And therefore we shouldn't blame the game for that kind of behavior. And I'm like, well, <laughs> let's wait a minute, you know? And this is one of the things I try to teach my, you know, intro to game studies students right off the bat is that you have to look at what the game facilitates and what it encourages you to do versus all of these other things that you could potentially do in the game world. Because you can do a lot of things that the, the developers never intended, but like you can't say with a straight face that the developers of Grand Theft Auto did not intend for you to kill sex workers for money. Like, it, seems, it seems like <laughs> in most games, the structures are fairly, they're rarely neutral. Like they're always kind of right. pushing you in one direction or another. Right. And kind of moving to a different practice of sort of tension, of, of trouble, of erasure, you devote a lot of your book, a really fascinating portion, to the practices of avatar creation and sort mm -hmm. of the science that goes behind that. And you sort of trace it, how it relates to sort of earlier problematic kind of physiognomic practices and things like that. I was wondering both kind of if you could flesh that out a little bit and then also like talk about a little bit what drew you to that topic in the first place. Yeah, um, I think I, I made a, a three minute pitch of this book uh, a couple weeks ago for an event. And that chapter I summed up as like, how the hell does Charles Darwin and the goddamn physiognomists keep getting resurrected over and over again every time we have a new technology for this, right? And and part of it is, um, you know, what I call the quantization of the body. And there are folks much smarter than me working on this on in all levels, right? Um, you think about uh, Sophia Noble's um, algorithms of oppression. I mean, there are all sorts of folks um, that are, are working on the sort of quantization of the body um, and the way that biometrics are really problematic and, and embedded within um, these like really old oppressive, you know, uh, political structures. Um, so like, I'm interested in that. I'm interested in biometrics, but mostly biometrics as they apply to video games, right? Which in that chapter manifests in 
not just avatar creation or facial customization, but also facial animation, period. And, you know, one of the things about computer art is that you are translating humans into numbers. Um, and that's a process of quantization, which is not just about turning something into numbers, but it's about a reduction of complexity of those numbers. And like, that happens in a literal sense, right? So that the, you know, the, the curve on my nose or whatever is best represented by this formula. Um, that's literally what's happening. But I, I wanted to kind of think of it also metaphorically that when you place a human into the constraints, the numerical constraints of a computer, you are already chopping out so much context, um, which is what computers try to do is, is to rip us out of our context. And that was the part that I thought um, was sort of like most important about this process. And, you know, in terms of animation practices, it manifests in a, in a lot of really like weird ways. Um, there, there are ways in which like animators can't help but like make certain masks that like other people can, you know, wear as demos, for example. There are the sort of like promises of diversity by numbers. Um, so I don't have the book with me right here, but I, I mentioned, and this was another regret that I had, I, I should have, included a picture of this book. Um, it's literally pictures of people of color next to renderings of their skulls and their skull measurements and like their facial like and saying that like this is a helpful tool for you to create diversity um, in your games. That comes from a good place, right? It comes from a place of wanting to represent a range of folks of different racial and ethnic backgrounds. But the way it manifests was like straight out of the 19th century. It was like literally a physiognomy manual. <laughs> and I, I was looking at these like skulls and I'm like, are you serious? Like, is this really how we're, we're doing this? Um, and you know, it boils down to the belief that we can capture gender and race visually, right? That that's what they are. They exist as visual characteristics um, or numerical characteristics, right? I've also been thinking about, um, or you could also think about genetic inheritance as part of like racial um, makeup too, but this is all like racial science. And the point of racial science is to easily sort folks for mostly the purposes of the government, right? Um, one of the examples that didn't make it into the book was there was this app um, that was created at, I forget, it was a university project. It was called um, Guess My Race. And it was, a, it was an iPad app that was literally like a slideshow of people. So it would have a person's face and it would say, guess my race. And it would have a bunch of different options. Um, and the options were not like simple. They would have like Caribbean American or like, Mexican or things that that we'd normally associate with like nationality um, or ethnicity or, or whatever and not race per se. Um, so you usually get it wrong. Um, but instead of like leaving it at that as like, haha, you know, I'm not, I'm this. Um, and instead of sort of like creating an essential an essentialist argument of like, my race is something like fixed about me and let's move on to the next person. They included like interviews with the person that explained sort of like how they identified um, racially and why. And I thought that was a great way of sort of complicating what is 
increasingly becoming this sort of, I mean, yeah, it's an essentialist uh, view of race, which is that you are X and that gives you X, Y, and Z characteristics. Um, instead of, I, I mean, critical race folks know this, but instead of understanding race as, um, first of all, like an invention of colonization, for example, um, but that is much more complicated than being born to a particular family or having certain particular um, physical characteristics, like race is the whole thing. And again, that quantizing process, that divorcing specifics from the context is happening at the literal, but also like the metaphorical level with these avatars. It was, I, I, it was astounding to me to see, I mean, modern day developers drawing from like, and like we said, these incredibly outmoded or at least perceived as outmoded manuals and texts from a, another century. And I honestly, I think it, and correct me if you disagree here, but I, I, I think it could, I see it only getting worse in some ways as we move more and more towards what Shoshana Zuboff calls the kind of the age of surveillance capitalism. And as like big tech more and more relies on quantization of human beings. Yeah, and automated processes, right? Like, and that's one thing that I, I find interesting about like the facial animation techniques is that like so much of it is automated now um, or that automation is a, is a huge part of the animation process. Um, and it's tremendously important to understand how machines are being taught to think about human faces and bodies. And animation practices are a little bit of the inverse of like facial recognition technology. Um, well, actually no, because it, it relies on facial recognition technology to operate, right? Like the computer has to be able to recognize what's an eyebrow or whatever, right? Um, and you know, the, the newer fancier ones don't even rely on the dots to, to sort of like, they can take just a video of your face um, and make, a, make an animation rig out of it. And so, yeah, I mean, computers are doing all sorts of things that like maybe we should understand a little bit more about or at least like think more about and and sort of like think about how we might be able to develop these systems differently perhaps. And so just to be clear these kind of reducing discursive processes is that what you're uh, what you're referring to when you use the phrase uh, lenticular logic which was a phrase you brought into the book um I can't remember which scholar it was it was originally from but I found it fascinating yeah that's Tara McPherson and yeah so that's the lenticular logic and and she builds the notion of lenticular logic off of um lenticular postcards so the postcards that if you shift them and this is in some ways a, a hulky sort of like antique technology right but you you sort of like shifted and you see one picture from this angle and another picture from this angle. Um, and so she uses that as the metaphor for thinking about the ways that these knowledge processes are siloed off from one another. So that like from one angle, you're seeing this, from the other angle, you're seeing this, but there's, it's not possible to see them both in their totality together, even though the actual postcard is made up of these really like complicated images. Oh, interesting. I, th I think I'd forgotten that that's where that term derived from. I, I can't remember if you mentioned it in the book, but that's really interesting. I, no, I did. I did not uh, mention that in the book, but it's a it's a fun. I don't know. I really I like metaphor, right? And as an English professor, so I and I like to think with things. Um, and so you know that that concept of lenticular logic or the concept of quantizing, right, which comes out of um, computer. Well, comes out of like math and computer science and that sort of thing, but. I'm not a mathematician or a computer scientist. I want to think with these things as, as like metaphors as well. And jumping a little bit forward in the book uh, to a kind of specific instance of digital representation or lack thereof, uh, femship, 
the, the female uh, version of Commander Shepard from the Mass Effect series. For anyone unfamiliar, can you talk a little bit about who <laughs> Femme Shep is and some of the kind of cultural baggage surrounding her? Yeah. Um, so Femme Shep, as you mentioned, is the, the female or femme version of um, Commander Shepard um, in the Mass Effect series, which, you know, on the one hand was, I mean, this is an old series, right? The first one came out in 2007. <laughs> That's another thing about working at on games um, and the, the timeline of academic books is that many of my examples are older, um, even though they're, they're games that I still like play and engage with right now. Um, but at the time, Femme Shep or Commander Shepard as a character that you could choose you could choose your main character as either a man or a woman. That's great. We have more choice. We have, you know, additional bodies to identify with or whatever. Um, but then the way that they went about, uh, and the, the developer's name is Bioware, the way that they, Bioware went about creating these two character stories is like, basically, they kept the same story for the male and female version of Commander Shepard. They just had different voice actors reading it. And then things get a little more sophisticated later down the line when you add different like romance options or whatever. Like basically Bioware games are known for really extensive plots, um, some degree of choice enabled on the part of the the player to like choose how the story goes uh, but then really so many people play them for like the love stories <laughs> so they're sort of like space romances um, and in every one of the Mass Effect games like you have a menu of people that you can choose to romance or not uh, and for the most part Bioware kind of stuck with straight relationships in the game so that Femshep had her selection of mostly masculine suitors and Broshep, who's the, the other version, um, had women to choose from. Um, except that there was this one species in the game called the Asari that are like women but not. They, they call them like a, a unisex species so that all the, all the Asari look like women um they're very like curvy they have breasts they're they're all like super stereotypically feminine um but there are no men or masculine asari in their species and they reproduce psychically um so they can reproduce with any species uh it, it's really weird um sort of like Amazon fantasy in a way. Uh, this is something that also pops up in the Legend of Zelda, Zelda around the, the Gerudo people, right? Where it's like, they are reproducing themselves somehow, but we don't really like talk about it. Or if we do talk about it, it's, it's just like this weird way to propagate pure blood Asari from other genetic stock, right? So the Asari can, can mate with anyone in the galaxy, but all the babies still look like Asari. Um, so the Asari character, uh, Liara, is available for romance to both Femshep and Broshep. And I had a lot of fun with the first Mass Effect trying to see if Femshep and Broshep versions of the romance were the same. Um, so I would go to YouTube and put up videos of the cutscenes next to each other and play pause, play pause until they were synced up. <laughs> 
So that <laughs> you can hear FemShep and BroShep like saying the same thing at the same time and the responses are exactly the same um, for the, the romantic partners. Uh, and then every now and then there would be a weird like glitch difference. But for the most part, it's like BroShep and FemShep romance Liara in exactly the same way. Um, and like as someone who at the time was more woman identified but like masculine woman identified that was really affirming for me because I'm like yeah Shepard is is totally like this butch hero um all of her her mannerisms were really sort of like masculine and the way she like romanced her partners was very masculine so like I was super into it um but you know that's a sort of like accident accidentally queer representation because what's actually happening is that like Broshep is the original and they just sort of reskinned him to be a woman and that's a, a more problematic thing and this is something that a lot of folks have noted about Mass Effect in particular um and you know has caused a lot of like controversy in the community the other thing that happened is that the actress or the actor who plays Femshep is far and away superior to the actor who plays Broshep and I will like fight anyone who says otherwise um, and this is a big a big uh, argument in the, in the community as well right because the Broshep actor was just terrible and so like in a lot of ways like Femshep was a better experience of the game but Bioware never used her for their advertisements so it was always Broshep on the cover. It was always Broshep in the commercials. If you hadn't played the game or read about it, you wouldn't even know that there was an option to play a woman, even though she was the better performer. Um, this changed with Mass Effect 3. And I, I write about the this uh, really great fan video that came out um, that was the many faces of FemShep, which explored the, the sort of like diversity and range of what you can, can make as FemShep. Um, but like the fans petitioned Bioware and said like, you have a really great, other version of this character that we would love to see acknowledged officially. Um, and the fans were persuasive. And yet, <laughs> the way that they won is that Bioware's like, okay, we'll use FemShep as a cover, but like there are so many different versions of this person. Let's have a competition to see what face we put on the cover. And so then it just like devolved into this really like sexist thing where they literally created like, I don't know, 15 different women's faces and we're like, vote on your favorite FemShep. And the woman who won was this like stereotypically attractive, normative, feminine, white woman with red hair. So that's like the fans vote for FemShep. Uh, and I, I find this, I mean, that's super problematic, but it's also interesting. Um, and in the chapter, like I'm really interested in exploring how corporations capture diversity right, for the purposes of, I mean, we know this, right, they capture diversity for the purposes of capital and profit. Um, but in Mass Effect, this sort of like manifested in not just, like, not just diversity for profit, um, but the, the actual technical systems of the game restricted diversity to these very clean categories, right? So like, you can have a FemShep that has all different skin tones, different haircuts, et cetera, et cetera. But none of that is going to have any impact on what she does and says through the game, right? So your, your choice is constrained by a lot. And I, I sort of, again, thinking in metaphor, uh, wanted to think about that as the way that, you know, 
capital corporations, power, whatever, sorts us into these easy categories, right? Which is what race is, right? Is, is trying to sort us into easy categories um, for the purposes of management, right? It is unmanageable, like literally unmanageable for a game to offer infinite choice. And so like the choices have to be constrained. And I recognize that this is a technical necessity. That's like the first thing that people always say when I start talking about this is like, well, you can't just like let them be anything. And I'm like, no, that's true. And yet it's really interesting to, to see where the boundaries are. Um, and in this case, the boundaries were around a man, right? Like this is a man that we're putting a woman's body on and a woman's voice. So is this what, so this is all kind of what you were referring to when you describe femship as a bit of a kind of almost hallucination or that, that the character doesn't cohere in certain aspects? Yeah. Um, and I, I use the phrase consensual hallucination, which is uh, William Gibson, uh, <laughs> right? The, the sort of like thinking about the internet is a or virtual reality as a consensual hallucination. Um, and I, I like that phrasing because we just sort of like, very few people really talk about the fact that this is happening or it really ruins the experience of the game if you recognize that. So like in some ways we just have to put that aside and it's an agreement as well to sort of like abide by the magic circle, right? Like I have power in this virtual world to make these decisions and like my decisions are really important. When in fact, like everything's pre-scripted. You're just choosing like to put the blocks together in a different way. Um, but you have to, you have to ignore that to, to sort of like really buy into the game. And uh, I equals another, which is another kind of fascinating thing that you brought up in the book. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about kind of why you brought that in and what that means. And I, I'm blanking on the uh, scholar's name who initially kind of constructed that, but. Yeah, so that's Kara Keeling. Um, who right. who is a black feminist media scholar um and i i mean i think her writing is really provocative um and i was really drawn to the formulation i equal another in part because it's like what <laughs> what does that mean um in part because it's like sort of sort of mathy or par paramath in the way that a lot of the concepts i've been playing with are but also like she was writing about digital documentary like she wasn't even writing about video games but when i saw that and sort of like read through the pieces like that's the experience of being an avatar right it's me but it's also like this other person um and she was writing and it's been a long time actually <laughs> since i've reread this article but she was she was writing about identification um, and also about appropriation, which I find really interesting in that I only really mentioned like towards the end of the article, but she was building off of um, Audre Lorde and, and Audre Lorde thinking about the house of difference, what she calls the house of difference. Um, and that is a concept and Audre Lorde's work is just like so central to everything that I think about um, in part because she's so real about conflict and about like the importance of conflict. And that's what the house of difference is, right? The house of difference is not about, um, and this, this, she comes up with a term, it's sort of like a, almost a throwaway line um, in Zami, her auto, auto mythography. My auto name by, what was it? Uh, the new spelling of my name. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, she talks about like, we weren't, 
we weren't sort of like unified together in this this sort of like under this one identity category it was difference itself that binds us together and she's talking about like lesbian community where she was like a, a lesbian bar sort of thing and like there's all kinds of different people but like we have marginalization as our common um, uniting factor rather than trying to force ourselves to be under this term lesbian for example um, and Audrey Lord writes about this in a lot of different ways across her oeuvre but um, you know she she wanted to draw attention to the fact that white feminists um, and even like white lesbian feminists always wanted unity they always wanted like we are women we need to bond over the fact that we're women and we're oppressed as women um when audrey lord's like look y'all aren't meeting my needs as a black woman as a black lesbian as you know someone who advocates for working class and poor folks like this like white women solidarity is not helpful um and it erases all of these very specific needs that my communities have um, or that these other sort of like identities have um and you know a lot of folks you know uh, Kimberly Crenshaw's notion of intersectionality is is the sort of like way that we understand this now but like women of color feminists and black feminists in particular have been talking about these like intersectionality for like since Sojourner Truth right <laughs> like it goes back a long way but for me that image of being united by difference rather than trying to unify under an identity um, was really compelling and again thinking metaphorically through the avatar and car keeling brings us into sort of like identifying with digital documentary subjects and, and that kind of thing and the the digital image as this sort of like unstable place of identity or an unstable sort of like thing um for me, like avatars encapsulate that really well in that there is some sort of identify, identification process going on. Um, and I'm not a sociologist. Uh, I know there are a lot of uh, folks more in the social scientists who are like really interested in this question uh, <laughs> in a, a sort of like quantitative way. Um, I'm interested more in, in thinking about it conceptually, but like there's identification going on. There is a sort of like link between myself and this avatar. Um, and then with FemShep, what I saw is that, okay, in some ways, like FemShep enables us to create all of these different kinds of FemSheps, right? Different hair, skin, different sexual orientations, different gender presentation, like within the confines of the, the game. So like we have difference and each of us sort of like identifies and plugs into our FemShep, which we we sort of like customize based on whatever right some people like to make themselves some people like to make their sort of like fantasy identity some people just want to you know play around with it or whatever but in some ways we're attached to this and then through femshep and through all of the like multiplying femsheps that are out there somehow this community around femshep formed and like femshep is femshep isn't and, and this was my sort of like opening gambit in the chapter, like FemShep isn't a real person. And I, I don't mean this like she's fictional. I mean this like everyone's FemShep is different from everyone else's FemShep. They have the same voice, but that's about it, right? Different choices. I mean, radically different choices. You could commit genocide as FemShep or you can go out of your way to like save everyone, right? Those are two very different personalities. So like FemShep as a concept, 
only coheres around this avatar that enables you to make certain choices within this narrative universe. Um, and that's what I, I found really fascinating thinking about the I equals another. And I, I extended that as, you know, the transitive property, um, thinking mathily, <laughs> right? So that if I equal another and you, or if I equal FemShep and you equal FemShep too, then like, oh, <laughs> right? We are, we are linked in some ways through this avatar. Um, and I don't, I mean, there are obviously other avatars that do this, but it was really salient for me um, around FemShep in part because of my engagement with Mass Effect and how personal my experience was with the game. But I also haven't seen that kind of a community revolve around that kind of a, she's not a character. I don't even know what to call her. She, she's a sort of like suture into the game world um, around that sort of nexus. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, that's why FemShep was, was the, the example here because there's a lot of like interesting things going on and that uh many faces of femshep video um and i do hope if you haven't watched it look it up and watch it um because it is it's just really cool the way the the um vitter sage um and i i, I passed emails back and forth with sage um about her project uh, and it was really cool because we were like oh my god it's so cool she was like oh my god it's so cool that like you saw what i was trying to do and i was like oh my god i'm glad i got it right <laughs> right but like she was really interested in visually representing the fact that everyone's femships are different and yet we're still united in some way as a community even though we're all like really different femships um and the the video does that really well um to, to sort of like showcase and was that any of the frustration around the ending of what was it mass effect 3 was it where it was kind of i, I mean like you said it's one of the beauties of the the games are these sort of myriads of options and different pathways and different characterizations and then was it three where it just kind of ends and yes. cover your ears anyone who hasn't finished the game but uh the galaxy just gets annihilated it's... i mean can you have spoilers for you know game no, that's over eight years out, yes uh, um no ten, ten years no, it's not that old, Mass Effect 3. It's getting close to It's getting up stuff. there, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so Mass Effect 3, I sort of like, the, the way that I characterized the fan response to the Mass Effect 3 ending was a little dismissive because it was a real slap in the face. It, it was not just that like, they didn't take all of my decisions into account. It was like, they really phoned it in. Like hardcore, you have this sprawling saga and then the end you're given three choices but the the ending animation is basically the same for all three choices and like you don't really there it leaves open a lot of questions it contradicts some of the earlier lore so like the game revolves around these mass relays which are basically like teleporters in space and in one of the previous um like expansion side stories or whatever a mass relay is blown up and like destroys an entire star system. And at the end of Mass Effect 3, like all the mass relays blow up. So it's like, do we just like destroy the universe? <laughs> um, but it was real, it was real like, that ending was not great. Um, and people got mad about it. People like sued them. Somebody filed an, an FTC complaint. Like there was a, there was a lot of, of feelings about this. Um, and so they went back and, redid the ending and and down you know made it as like a download um for folks but 
yeah, I mean, part of that anger was the attachment to the fact that I made all these choices and none of them were represented at the end. But it's also sort of like butting up against the structure of games, right? You can't have infinite choice. You can't have infinite story. Um, and I mean, this is one way, some people would say of many ways that uh, things like tabletop gaming or like D&D are far superior to video games because like a human storyteller can make up all this shit on the fly and, 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 take, and take these things into account. A computer program can't do that. A computer program has what you've given it. Um, and so like, in part, like I understood what was happening and I was just like, that's really disappointing that they didn't do more to try to make us feel like things mattered. But like at the end of the day, they don't actually matter. Like there's no way all of these decisions you've made along the way can matter. And that's just like the problem with choice in video games. It's not like, it's, I mean, it's illusion, right? And it, there's definitely certain video games where the choices matter more and others where they're just kind of performative or almost kind of aesthetic. Like, oh, you get to make a lot of choices in the game, but none of them really affect anything. Yeah. And like, they can, right? Our, our expectations are so like overblown. Um, and some people like to, to critique the Mass Effect fandom for being really entitled. Uh, and it's like, how, you know, how dare you expect more than this? you should have known all along. But yeah, I mean, there, there are better ways to mask the fact that your choices don't matter. <laughs> yeah. So returning quickly to uh, scholarship of both Lord and Keeling, who I'm, gl I'm glad you brought in Lord because I was gonna definitely gonna ask about her a little bit later on. I really liked how you brought both of their scholarship in towards the end of the book as a sort of counterweight in some ways or a, a complication to some of uh, like, Roger uh, Kewa's uh, idea of the the Aegon, am I pronouncing that correctly? The, yeah. Yeah, and can you talk a little bit more about the, the Aegon and what you mean by agonistic conflict <laughs> versus antagonistic? Like, I found that really interesting. Yeah, um, and so this is, you can read more about this and there's an entire field of political theory right now that's called agonistic politics. Hmm. Um, and so in part, I was trying to bring that into the conversation because I find it really fascinating and I find it very true to I don't know, the way that I handle things in my day-to-day -day life. Um, I don't know. Again, I mentioned I grew up in, a, in an evangelical, you know, family. So I had a lot of conflict growing up. Um, and in some ways, like, my growth as a human being has been learning how to manage conflict in healthy ways <laughs> because you're, you're not going to get along with everybody. Um, but I found that, again, in the way that some of the less contemporary folks like Audre Lorde sort of like prefigure discussions of intersectionality as we know it. Um, I saw in contemporary agonistic political theory echoes of what Audre Lorde was already talking about in terms of if you don't let the conflict happen, then all you're going to do is simmer the issues and then something's going to blow up, right? It's not real it's not real solidarity, in other words. Um, agonistic political theory, uh, and the, the, the one that I read the most of was, was Muffet. Um, and I, I, I really liked you know, the things that she had to say. Um, but like one of the things that struck me about what she was writing was that like if you don't have arguments in society, 
like a peaceful society is not going to be peaceful for very long, right? You have to learn how to negotiate disagreements because if everything is quiet, somebody's probably not happy um, or somebody's probably holding their tongue to preserve the peace. And that's explicitly what Audre Lorde talks about when she talks about white feminism um, and the fact that, you know, if Black women are often labeled as angry, it needs to, like, you need to embrace that and you need to be able to face that anger and account for it, right? Like, because it's not coming out of nowhere. Um, and this resonates with the earlier conversations that I had about, like, the angry feminist, um, which, like, you know, it, it I also draw a lot from Sarah Ahmed. Sarah Ahmed is also really influential in the way that I think about the world, right? But thinking about the killjoy or the the figure um, that disrupts moments of solidarity or moments of like unity and good feelings. So for me, agonistic politics is is one sort of like way to think about encouraging conflict and encouraging healthy conflict and and not encouraging folks to like, stop making waves in our communities because if we're not and I, I I said this also in my my three minute spiel about the book like if we're not lovingly advocating for ourselves by fighting with each other like what's what's the point <laughs> um nobody can understand everything about someone else's needs now where this intersects with the Aegon which is Kaiwa's like one of the foundational concepts in game studies uh and, and this is in part trying to rethink um, canonical game studies for, for lack of a better term. Um, and I, I regret, this is one of the other big regrets that I have. So there's a, there's a new book out by Tara Fickle called The Race Card. And it came out just as um, Gamer Trouble was going into uh, copy edits, right? So like absolutely no time to integrate it. Um, but Fickle has really great takedowns of the Magic Circle and of Kaiwa's um, taxonomy of games and a lot of people um and I've had this conversation with some of my colleagues like a lot of folks like read like the first chapter or two of, of Kaiwa's book about like which taxonomizes games as like the the Aegon the I'm forgetting the the taxonomy right now off the top of my head but um the Aegon is supposed to be like the competition but if you read the rest of that book it's like all about colonization and it's all about like he's classifying games as anthropological work to explain why western culture is superior right like, that's the point of the book um <laughs> i i think i mentioned this in passing in the conclusion of gamer trouble um i should have made a bigger deal about it um but you can read Tara Fickle's book for a really great takedown of, of some of the, the canonical game studies folks. Um, it's really brilliant and, and I love it. Uh, but uh, yeah, so like the Aegon sort of represents or, or resonates with the, the concept of trouble that I've been playing with through the entire book, which is the idea that like everything's full of turbulence. Um, and like really it must be full of turbulence or else it's boring. You don't play a game, like games aren't fun if you're not like struggling to do something. That's the whole point. Um, and so like the Aegon as this sort of like competitive style of game 
is supposed to be fun. I mean, he has this whole thing about like fairness and about, you know, uh, on an even, even battlefield, whatever, whatever, which is all great, right? It's all the sort of like idealistic idea of competition and, and nobility and, and that kind of thing. Um, Muffet sort of makes this with agonistic politics, she makes this distinction between agonistic and antagonistic, um, which is the difference between coming together as or coming together in this sort of like respectful um, conflict with one another that is not seeking out annihilation um, versus antagonism, which she characterizes as conflict that has the, the explicit goal of annihilation. And it's really interesting, you know, in this moment of cancel culture, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, you know, she's writing before things have gotten to this, this point. So um, I think I, I read some of her stuff about like, or applied to these sort of like white supremacist speakers that come to campus and like getting shut down. And is that, you know, a violation of free speech and how does this fit with something like agonistic politics? Like, should we argue with these people? Um, and, you know, the answer to that is like, an agonistic society is only tenable. <laughs> and this is the, a bit of a par paradox, right? If you don't allow folks with these annihilatory, or, you know, with the end goal of annihilation, which is what white supremacist groups are seeking, they have no place in the society, right? So it's that paradox is we, we it's from like Alien 3, we tolerate everyone, actually, no, in Alien 3, it was everyone, even the intolerable, but we tolerate everyone except the intolerable <laughs> or the intolerant, which that's a great conversation I like to have with my mom all the time. Um, heavy sarcasm, but like this idea that like, I am the intolerant one for being intolerant of her intolerance. <laughs> but, you know, um, agonistic confrontation only works if everyone agrees that like, we're not trying to silence anybody um, or, you know, take away their power, et cetera. And to me, that's, that's what good trouble is about, right? It's about agitation. It's about um, sort of like political conflict with the goal of changing society to meet the needs of the folks who are not, whose me needs are not being met yet. Um, without the sort of like nightmare that like once, you know, the marginalized rises to power, they're gonna, you know, destroy everyone else. Um, which is what Portal is about. <laughs> I was, it's a good good time to jump in and quickly look at Portal. I mean, I, I, I loved Portal. I, I never thought of it that deeply before. And so if you could talk a little bit about kind of how you address Portal and how you kind of troubled perhaps some of the kind of laudatory. I mean, people see Shell and GLaDOS as being a very kind of female-centric narrative in some ways and how you kind of troubled that a little bit. Uh, yeah, I mean, that whole chapter about Portal and Bayonetta is in part like a manifestation of my own contrariness, um, <laughs> which I, I own fully. And it's it's part of, you know, making trouble um, in ways that I hope are productive, right? Um, but like, yeah, we're in, in, I will actually say that my thinking about Portal, I was, I, I love Portal too. I really, or portal as well. Um, <laughs> I, I think it's a great game. It's super fun. It's super interesting. Um, and I was one of the folks who was really like excited about like, here's a female avatar that's not super sexualized. And like, this is great for representation. Um, but my, I, it was actually a student that 
helped start to turn me around. I had a student one semester, um, this was back when I was in grad school, who wanted to write a paper about how Portal demonstrated the ways that affirmative action was harmful to boys. Straight-faced, wanted to, to show me how boys were getting left behind by like pro women in science stuff. And I was like, uh, <laughs> and then I realized like, yeah, actually that's kind of what, what Portal does. <laughs> um, because she was, the, the student was right. Like all of the incompetence in that game is, are men. Um, all of the like, well, the murderer that's still alive is Glados, a woman, right? And it's it's a sort of like manifestation of the rape revenge cycle, um, which had a big run, you know, in the seventies in particular. Spit on, um, spit on your grave and things. I like spit that. on your grave, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, where the idea is that like a woman gets wronged um, through sexual assault and then goes on like a killing spree uh, to to avenge herself, right? And it's one of the the only acceptable ways historically that that women are allowed to be powerful and violent um, is to you know wrong uh, a sexual trespass but it's also like extremely problematic in certain ways because it also encapsulates this masculine fear that if women get power they're just gonna go wild and we're all gonna die right um which is why women's power historically is is constrained to like monsters in in certain ways. Um, I was really into that as an undergrad, just like writing about monster women all the time. Uh, <laughs> um, so like Glados is that fantasy, right? She is the fantasy that we gave women this woman a, a science facility and she killed everyone, and is like a sadistic torturer, um, and and that's what happens when women take over science. So then the other big video game you talk about that chapter, Bayonetta, would she be kind of a campy reinterpretation of that same kind of yes. fear fantasy? Yes. Um, and she, you know, she en encapsulates the even more primal um, fantasy of like women want to chop our dicks off. Uh, and that game is just like castrations everywhere. Um, but at the cost of like, Bayonetta is like really highly sexualized. So like in some ways, and I, I Bayonetta is, is the game that like a lot of people like to argue with me about, which is fine. I don't, I don't, I think she's a sort of like both and case um, where I think there's a lot of really interesting queer and feminist potential uh, in Bayonetta, but also like, yeah. The, the developers were literally like sculpting the perfect ass for her character and, and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, so like, you know, with camp as this sort of like excessive kind of like uh, embodiment and manifestation of, of whatever, in this case, femininity, um, I find Bayonetta a much more compelling um, case of, cause like in Portal, you have this powerful woman and, and your entire like goal is to tear her apart is to like knock her Literally. off of her yeah. yeah knock her off of her pedestal of power with bayonetta like you are you are the powerful woman and you are are dismantling patriarchy right so to me this is a very different um thing you're still trying to reset the balance of power but 
in very different ways considering our current political like contemporary context um and bayonetta is very clearly about like this fantasized version of the catholic church the literal patriarchy <laughs> as i call it um and you know there have been other sort of like writers who have, have noted that like Banetta's sexuality itself is her weapon, um, especially given the fact that like the Catholic Church has been really prohibitive of women's sexuality in particular and, and women's bodies. And so like, to me, it all seems like really appropriate in a, in a certain way um, and very much like of the moment and in context. But at the same time, yeah, it's it's hella problematic. And like, I didn't I didn't discuss like the optional outfits that you could get for her. Like, there were a lot of things that you know you could you could complicate my reading of the game or trouble it if you were. Uh, and I'm totally open to that. Um, but yeah, no, I think Bandit is really rich, and there's a lot there. I think there's a lot there for Portal too. Um, and the the thing with like both of them. Well, one of the things about Portal is the sort of like racial dynamics of the game, um, where GLaDOS is very clearly a white woman. Chell is not so much, right? Um, and Very ambiguous, right? There's a very, lot of... Yeah, very ambiguous. But, um, you know, the fan base of the game, and particularly like women of color gamers, were really excited because the actress, Alicia Glidewell, um, who they modeled Chell off of, is a... Um, mixed race like woman of color um and so folks were really excited about that um except like she's the avatar body that you're controlling and there's you know you're in a science facility she's in like a prison jumpsuit it's like really like this is one of the only women of color that you can play in a game and she's like literally a prisoner who's being subject to science um which is redolent like, of many oppressive systems of yeah right right um and so to me that was just like off um, and, you know, something that nobody really talked about. Everyone always, like, celebrated the fact that Chell was, was a woman of color. And I'm like, well, let's think about this a little bit differently. Um, and then, of course, with Bayonetta, like, she has full license to be violent, in part because she's, like, a posh, white, British woman, right? Um, it, it would be a different story entirely for Bayonetta to be black, for example. If she goes on a killing rampage and chopping off everyone's dicks, like that's a different story and people will take that very differently. And, you know, I, I compare both of them to like Laura Croft, for example, um, who, you know, inherits the whole Indiana Jones thing where she's like the white hero taming the, the savage lands or whatever. And so like, you know, again, not attending to race and racial dynamics in these games that are of great interest to feminist critics, um, I think really does a disservice to, you know, what's actually happening in the games. That is all super fascinating. Thank you. So I think the, the kind of last area I want to touch on, you have a phrase, I can't remember which chapter this is from. I think it's from the uh, Avatars uh, chapter. But you have a phrase where you said, uh, ludic, scholarship, or, ludic spaces call for ludic scholarship. And <laughs> earlier you were talking about sort of your experiments with the YouTube videos and kind of like uh, putting up the Mass Effect uh, love scenes next to each other. You also in that chapter, the Avatar chapter, kind of like have a lot of experimentation with different limitations of the Avatar construction process. I was wondering a little bit kind of if you could expand a little bit on what you mean by ludic scholarship and how that kind of both how it's applied in your own field and your own experience, but also where it might be going in the future. 
Yeah, um, I mean, so part of that is literal, right? Um, some there are some folks who want game studies to be called ludology, right? After ludus or, or you know game, um, in Latin, Greek, Greek. Yeah, 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 I'm not sure. Ludus and piety, I think it's Greek. Ludens is yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Anyways, um, one of those languages, uh, right? Uh, so ludic scholarship being about game like gaming scholarship um but then also like the playfulness that i take scholarly work um manifested both in those like experiments that i was doing trying to to you know wrestle avatar creators and like i was doing this before monster factory was doing it but like monster factory uh is doing that kind of work as well sort of testing the limits of avatar creators and how to make um uh like really outrageous faces, et cetera. Uh, but they do it in this weird sort of like ableist uh, way that, <laughs> I don't know, I'm uncomfortable with the politics of Monster Factory, even though I acknowledge that I'm doing some of the same things. Um, so there's that, like literal playing with these systems. But I think there's also a certain like conceptual and theoretical playfulness that I have throughout this book that in some ways, and I think, certainly <laughs> i don't know i'm i'm not the best and I, I mentioned this before i'm not the best at like this laser focus on a theory that i want to take down to its like depths and explore it's like the limitations of its logical possibilities that's not how i think i think across all of these things and so i'm just kind of like jumping through these ideas and, and it's much more sort of like associative for me and in that way i think my my scholarship is very playful as well um and you know when i talk to talk to students particularly grad students about this book um, you know, it comes from my dissertation and it, it comes from a moment of like great trouble in my life where like as a first gen college student, I'm very much trying to figure out my way. I don't think I was a particularly good graduate student. Um, I always have struggled with theory, for example. Um, it, and so like for me, like it, 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 there's a lot of anxiety there um, and, you know, in part, this book was a really great way of just like owning that. And it's like, look, theory is is tools, right? Like these are these are just tools um, to think with, right? As as Donna Haraway says. And so like this is how I think about it. Um, it's not everyone's bag. It's not it's not again that sort of like laser focused kind of theory, but it works for me. It produces a lot of like really interesting things. Um, my brain is always firing in different directions, um, and so you know, I, I hope it also serves as a model for other folks who want to get kind of like, for lack of a better word, like sloppy <laughs> with theory. Um, because I, I, I think that I am. That makes complete sense. <laughs> and that's actually all the questions I had. So thank you so much for coming on here. Like I said, I loved the book. Absolutely loved it. I'm, I'm so glad. Um, and it's, a, it's always a pleasure uh, to, to get to talk about it with folks, um, not only folks who enjoy it, but like folks who are also invested in video games and, and thinking about like pop culture a lot. So um, thanks for, thanks for having this conversation with me.